1600, rockoftalk.com, abq.fm. We are continuing our outstanding Saturday coverage with Jeffrey Candelaria and Straight Talk. Always interesting and informative conversation and talk you're probably not going to hear anywhere else except maybe in your own personal life. How's it going today, Jeffrey? Good, Eric. Thank you again for producing Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on 1600 a.m. That's amplitude modulation. You're right, Eric. You're not going to hear this kind of conversation and enlightenment with the content and the kind of guests that I bring anywhere in New Mexico. That's that, that's for sure. And it's a, a function of the fact that I have a very curious mind and uh, growing up in austere surroundings, I thought having a curious mind and embracing education and expanding uh, my interest in various disciplines would be a way to distinguish myself from the rest of the little ghetto rats I grew up with. Outstanding. Well, I personally am glad to hear your show every Saturday. Well, I appreciate it. And I thank uh, Kiva1600 for producing the show. Before I introduce my guest, and and I promise for the next hour, you're going to want to listen in uh, to the content and my guest and his experience. Before I introduce uh, my guest, a couple of announcements like to uh, recognize my security s3 safety tip sponsor of the week tip and that is don't forget folks this is tax season eric and a lot of malicious uh, pernicious emails are going out and text messages under the auspices of the internal revenue service right don't interact with those texts or emails because the IRS does not engage in that kind of a communication outreach. So be very aware of the IRS scams that are going out, particularly now during uh, tax season. And that's brought to you by one of my sponsors. That's Ben Mozak. And he is the owner of S3 uh, Safety uh, Communications and Security Company, S3, S3 Security. If uh, you'd like to sponsor my show, please get a hold of me. Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, dot candy, seven, seven, at gmail.com. Also like to thank Pavlos Panagopoulos for sponsoring the show. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, more sponsors, so please uh, think about sponsoring Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelier. Okay, now, right into uh, our show. My guest is Mr. Alan Deal, Ph.D. Uh, he is a research psychologist who himself survived a plane crash and spent more than 30 years as an investigator for the National Transportation Safety Board, the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, and the United States Air Force. While he received uh, multiple awards for his innovative work, he eventually became a whistleblower at the Air Force Safety Center here in Albuquerque. And our first uh, segment with Ellen we're going to be talking about mysterious uh, air uh, aircraft crashes over the last 50, 60 years, and his uh, experience in those uh, in those areas. Alan Deal, welcome to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Jeffrey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we begin, I, I wanted to ask a little bit off script here. You survived a, a plane crash. Succinctly tell us about what that situation was about. Well, I was actually the pilot. Uh, I just got my uh, pilot license and uh, 
took a light plane into the mountains and got caught in a downdraft in North Carolina. Uh, I learned that uh, light aircraft don't have shoulder harnesses, damn near died. Uh, but uh, from there on out, I was interested in aviation safety. Yeah. So when you crashed, at approximately what speed do you think you were you were traveling at impact, would you surmise? Uh, actually, it was quite slow. I was attempting to make a forced landing. Okay. I, I could see I wasn't going to career... Uh, clear a ridgeline and better to put it down in a controlled fashion than uh, fly into the trees. Yeah. All right. Well, thank God you're here and you survived. So you not only have the experience of aviation crashes from the investigative perspective, but you actually survived it. So that's what makes you quite unique in the discipline of really investigating aircraft uh, uh, crashes. So let's start with something that's very parochial, very local, and anybody that looks to our uh, mountains to the east, the Sandias, which essentially is watermelon in Spanish, there is the remains of a TWA uh, prop aircraft that crashed somewhere in the 50s uh, do you know a little bit about that and let our audience know that, that the remains of that crash are still on the east side of the Sandia Mountains? Yes, Jeffrey. I, uh, that was way before I started investigating accidents, of course, but I did study that. And uh, it, was, it occurred in February of 55. Uh, they took off at 7 a.m. into cloudy weather. And uh, the aircraft was headed for Santa Fe, but it veered uh, off towards the Sandia Mountains and crashed there, killing uh, 18 people, including the three crew members. So there were 18 deaths. I, I didn't realize it was that large a craft. It was a, a twin-engine prop. Was that, that, was that right? Uh, correct. It was a, what's called a 404 Martin airliner. They can carry up to like 40, but fortunately, you know, on the short hop to Santa Fe, uh, they only had, uh, I guess, 15 passengers and the three crew members. Uh, an interesting thing about that, Jeffrey, uh, now the Civil Aeronautics Board preceded the NTSB, and their first uh, thought was, an announcement was, there must have been a suicide pack. Uh, how, do, how do two crew members, you know, flying to Santa Fe, hit the, near the Sandia Peak? Uh, they later changed that to Pilot Air. And if you want to uh, pursue it more, I can tell you that the Pilots Union, uh, years later, forced the Civil Aeronautics Board to acknowledge that there was a defective piece of equipment probably aboard that aircraft. So the pilots were flying the wrong heading when at the last second they realized we're in the mountains. Yeah. They turned back to the west and uh, didn't clear a second ridgeline. Unfortunately, everybody died, and you're right. You can actually hike up there. There's a memorial there. Obviously, all the human remains are gone, and most of the wreckage is. But you can sometimes see it on a good day from the tram, but you can also hike up there if you've got the uh, walking ability. Yeah, in fact, uh, my friend... Uh, my best friend deceased three years ago. We actually traversed the entire span of the the Sandias from Placidas, believe it or not, all the way to Harris. What a what a hike, twenty six miles. But on another hike, we actually went to that memorial, wow. and it's quite stunning to see the actual. You can see the T and the W from TWA, the red lettering, the white. You know, it's faded by now, but I mean, it's there. There's a memorial right there, essentially in the middle of what we see as the Sandia Mountains. And again, that's the kind of thing that you research in your discipline. Uh, the other thing I wanted to, to discuss as we continue to move on, by the way, I'm going to have to have you back because we, we've already, you know, we're, we're barely scratching the surface, the, uh, the surface of these conversations. And the next half of the radio show, we want to talk about your book, uh, Kidnap Marilyn, The Daring Scheme to Save Her, and your theory that maybe 
her death was a result of an actual murder uh, plot. But let's continue down this road and talk a little bit more about uh, the uh, black box recording kind of thing. We all we all have heard there's this thing called a black box in all aviation aircraft. Talk a little bit about that and this and how it relates to the Civil Aeronautics uh, Board investigators, you know, uh, entity. Yeah, the black boxes really didn't come into uh, civil aviation until the late 60s. This accident occurred in the 50s. And so the, the Civil Aeronautics Board was just guessing. So they started out with pilot suicide pack, which, of course, was ridiculous, uh, most people would say. And then they said, oh, it's just pure pilot error. The pilots weren't attentive. And then finally, the pilots' union forced them to admit that this type of uh, compass repeater that gives information to the pilots cause the accidents but then there's actually two uh, black boxes aboard airliners now there's a voice recorder a cockpit voice recorder and then there's a flight data recorder so in those days the investigators really didn't have that benefit by the time i went to work in the late 70s uh for the ntsb I listened to those voice recorders in particular as a psychologist i was fascinated because i could hear Oftentimes, the co-pilot, flight engineer, sometimes even a flight attendant, hinting about uh, things are, are not right. But the captain continued, and uh, they, they crashed. And we're going to talk about that again. My guest on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. If you'd like to sponsor my show, get a hold of me, jeffrey.candy77 at gmail.com. We're with you every Saturday from 1 or 2 p.m. There is no other show that has this kind of content, this insight with the kind of guests we provide thanks to... Uh, uh, 1600 Kiva, the Rock of Talk. My guest, Alan Deal, research psychologist who survived a plane crash and has spent uh, 30 years of his life as an investigator for the National Transportation Safety Board, Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, and the United States Air Force. Eventually, he became a whistleblower, and we're going to talk all about that as we continue to unfurl this conversation. So let's move on to another crash that I think a lot of our listeners are very familiar with. 2014, there was this crash. Uh, it was a, uh, a Boeing 777, so a, a large craft, relatively speaking. It appeared somewhere in Malaysia, like Kuala Lumpur, for those folks that want to cite a city to a country. But it was never found, right? The, re- the remains of the, of the craft were never found, and that's almost like... Are you kidding? Did it go into the uh, Bermuda Triangle? I mean, what happened? But So you, you spent some time... Uh, relating to this particular crash again this is the boeing 77 uh crash 777 crash 2014 malaysia yeah they they took off from kuala lumpur and uh headed for beijing uh, and the aircraft made a series of turns now this is a giant jumbo jet 228 people aboard and uh by various means uh, they never have found the main wreckage they have found parts of the aircraft that floated up on the African beaches and various uh, uh, Indian Ocean uh, islands. But that was years later, right? Oh, yeah, years later. And that's uh, what I wanted you to stress is for years, there was there were no manifestations of this crash, right? Well, it, they, they knew uh, it had disappeared from radar. It had flown for about 50 minutes, and then all of a sudden, all the electronics were shut off. And uh, later on, uh, it's the middle of the night on a weekend, and apparently the controllers weren't <laughs> at the top of their game. They didn't uh, uh, connect real real quickly. So the, the actually the Vietnamese controller said, "Where's your?" Um, it was Malaysia 370. Where's flight Malaysia 370? And uh, the Malaysian controller said, 
we don't know. So they called the company, and the company erroneously said, we think it flew over Cambodia, not Vietnam. So that caused a big delay and allowed the aircraft to, uh, if you will, escape uh, a lot of radar coverage uh, in that part of the world. There's not as much as there is in the, this country. But uh, years, not years, but weeks later, they were able to get some idea of where the aircraft went through electronic transmitters that were actually on the engines. Yeah. Uh, they were maintenance transmitters, and it confirmed that the, the plane ended up in the Indian Ocean. And uh, everybody said, uh, gee, you know, kind of like this TWA crash here in Albuquerque, it must have been, you know, pilot suicide. He took the aircraft and flew into the Indian Ocean because he was mad at the government. Yeah. Uh, I can uh, comment on that if you want. That's the, that's the popular theory right now. And just to remind our listeners, again, a Boeing 777 is, you know, a 100-ton craft or whatever it is. It's an enormous plane, relatively speaking. And how many people perished in that crash? I, I think there was 228, including the So crew. just to remind our listeners, there was no remnant or manifestation of that crash for years so it wasn't like, you know, a month later we found it kind of thing. It, it took a great deal of resource and uh, investigative, you know, capacity to finally find what little we did of that craft. Well, yeah, the, the Jeffrey, the, the first few days and weeks they started looking in the South China Sea where it was scheduled to fly. But uh, a couple of interesting things about this uh, and why I don't believe it was a pilot suicide, if you want to want to discuss it, uh, I think he was he was angry at the the Malaysian government. They just sentenced one of his relatives to five years in jail, the former Secretary of Education of Malaysia. And uh, he was in the courtroom when that happened. The next day he takes off, and uh, he but he loads two extra hours of fuel aboard his giant jetliner. He doesn't need it to go to Beijing, the scheduled destination. But with that fuel, he could reach an island in the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia. It's an American base. Uh, and I think what he was going to do is broadcast uh, to the world his grievance yeah. with the Malaysian government and then tell everybody, I'm going to land safely at Diego Garcia. Don't shoot. I'm going to release the airplane and the people. Yeah. But something went very wrong. You know, just like American Flight 93 where the passengers revolted. We don't know what wrong. I don't know. But I, I really don't think he was uh, trying but to... But you, you think it was attributable to a mechanical defect or a mechanical error, not so much the human uh, will to, uh, you know, crash the plane and, you know, commit suicide? Jeffrey, that's, that's correct. Uh, a sister ship, a couple of years before it disappeared, was parked at the gate uh, in uh, Cairo, another 777. They hadn't closed the doors yet, and all of a sudden, the, the plane burst into flame in the cockpit within two minutes. They're on the ground now the captain says i'll fight the fire uh, first officer get everybody off the airplane no one died but within a couple minutes there was a huge hole in the side of the fuselage big enough big as a coffee table couple coffee tables so it i'm telling you electrical fires uh especially oxygen fed electrical fires can can cause uh a, a rapid decompression they're on yeah. the ground but if you're at 30 some thousand feet and you have a problem like that, maybe because the people are trying to break into the cockpit. Who knows? Yeah. And just again to remind our listeners, because I'm, I'm known on my show to not assume people know, you know, a lot about these technical issues. So 30,000 feet, to remind our listeners, is as high as Mount Everest, oh, which, yeah. la which last I checked, relative to sea level is five miles in the air. So when people say we're flying at 30,000 feet when you're eating your peanuts, remember, you're at... The troposphere, I think. So you're five miles above sea level. Just be aware 
of 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 the height that that you're traversing at that point. And, and of course, if something penetrates uh, uh, the cockpit, especially a fire, you're going to have smoke initially filling the cockpit and cabin, and then you're going to have an, what they call an explosive decompression. And uh, being a military flyer, uh, not a pilot, but I, uh, uh, we, we, we were trained to handle those things. But as passengers, uh, you know, that's unfamiliar. Of course, the, we all know the yellow Dixie cup mask come down from the ceiling. But if the plane is full of smoke and then all of a sudden uh, there's no air pressure because you're at the height of Mount Everest, basically, uh, things can go bad very quickly. Yeah. And I think if, if that captain had wanted to commit suicide, as some people say, instead of turning to the left, and going to Malaysia, uh, to the, uh, excuse me, to Diego Garcia, he would have turned to the right, went out to the Pacific, and put it in the, in the, the uh, trench, the famous Marianas Trench, which is as Seven deep, miles deep. Yeah, as deep so as... That's the, so that's the deepest point on Earth, by the way. See, I, I love you, Alan. You've got a curious yeah. mind. So it's actually two miles deeper, relatively speaking, in the opposite direction, the Mariana Trench. Seven miles deep. No one's ever been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, by the way. Uh, Except, uh, I think, recently there was one guy. Was it two? Uh, actually, uh, back in the 60s, the U.S. Navy went down there one time for a, a brief visit. And uh, 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 Robert, uh, I think his name is Cameron, the guy that wrote the Titanic and uh, did the Titanic movie, uh, went down and he, he built a submarine to go down there. But you virtually can't get there. And so if you want to hide the wreckage. Because of the pressure for one thing, pressure, right? Oh, yeah, the tremendous pressure. And pitch, pitch dark. Okay, we're digressing. Let's continue to, to talk about some of these mysterious crashes. My guest, Alan Deal, research psychologist, survived a plane crash and has spent 30 years investigating uh, mysterious uh, plane crashes. His resume is as long as Tolstoy's War, is pe- War and Peace, so I won't continue there. All right, what about the uh, the nighttime 1986 Soviet jetliner crash that killed uh, the president of Mozambique? Uh, I think uh, Ronald Reagan wanted uh, to see if it was some kind of an accident or assassination. That was a famous crash, right? 1986 Soviet uh, jetliner crash? Yeah, actually, it was the first head of state to die in a jetliner oh. and uh this guy's name was samoya michelle he met with ronald reagan reagan uh, uh was convincing him to to forget about being a soviet client state and come to the west we'll help you if you come to the west uh and so reagan had a vested interest and at the time i was one of the top investigators so they basically said pack your bags get over to africa because reagan wants to know <laughs> a curious mind was he uh, killed in a crash or was it an assassination? So I, I rushed over there, and at the time it looked like a series of mistakes by the crew. But uh, later on I found out that, uh, and the Soviets were claiming there was a phony radio beacon uh, involved that may have led the airplane into the mountains of South Africa. So the answer is we still don't know, and I've called on the United Nations to uh, continue the investigation. Very good. You know, again, to remind our listeners, Jeffrey Candelary, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelary. I'd love to have you sponsor my show. Give me a call or, excuse me, email me at jeffrey.candy. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dot candy, 77 at gmail.com. Another crash, we won't get into it, but just to remind our listeners about how, you know, it happens everywhere, this kind of thing called a crash, unfortunately. Right over here at uh, Mount Taylor, uh, 1950th, I think Elizabeth Taylor's then husband. She was married to about 30 people, but uh, not being you know facetious, one of her husbands died. I think his name was I forgot. Mike his name. Todd. 
Frank, yeah, Todd. So that crash happened over here at Mount Taylor, right, in the 50s, Well, it 60s? actually was it's, uh, just south of Grants. There's a farmer that, uh, uh, you know, discovered it. And, uh, yeah, they apparently encountered weather. She was sick that day and didn't go with uh, Mike Taylor to get her award back east. And the aircraft uh, encountered weather. So there's crashes all over the state of New Mexico, yeah. including Mike Todd's uh, Lockheed uh, twin-engine uh, private aircraft. And, of course, the other famous crash, we're digressing, but I will mention it, 1959, uh, the day the music died. Uh, what's his name with the goofy glasses, the nerd guy with the music? Never liked his music, but he died. What was his name? Yeah, I'm, I'm blocking right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the, the name? Big Bopper. Uh, and <laughs> Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly. There Buddy you go. Buddy Holly, yeah. Another that was famous a, crash. That was like in Kansas or uh, South Dakota, somewhere in there. Yeah, it was the summer uh, tour, and a. Uh, uh, it, they were flying in a light aircraft. The pilot was not instrument rated. They took off in snow. And here's an interesting thing. There was an ergonomic problem with the design of the display in that beach bonanza. Uh, he was used to a different type of display. So he, we think he misinterpreted uh, up and down and flew into this uh, snow-covered uh, field in a snowstorm. Yeah, and he killed uh, Buddy Holly, the big bopper, and a third uh, musician whose name escapes me right now. Yeah, the other guy that survived the pilot, it of course, was right? the uh, the guy, the famous guy, the Western guy. Uh, he wrote the theme song for that goofy uh, 1970s hillbilly show. <laughs> I forgot his name. He was a good friend with Johnny Cash. Anyway, another crash. It happens more than we recognize. At the same time, I don't want to, you know, invoke fear. At any given time over the continental United States, there's 40,000 aircraft. Think about that, folks. There are about 40,000 aircraft at any given time during the day over the continental United States. Jeffrey, when, when I first went to work for the NTSB, I'd been an aircraft designer, by the way, after surviving that crash. I went to work for Cessna, and I got them to install, with the help of one of your favorite people, Ralph Nader. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't buy that Pinto, yeah. I promise, with the uh, gas. Or, or gas. Corvair. But the Corvair. anyway, Ralph Nader uh, exposed the fact that light aircraft don't have shoulder harnesses, and I convinced the chief engineer of Cessna put shoulder harnesses in. But any, in any case... Uh, uh, it's often uh, that, that light aircraft are more dangerous than airliners, but they deregulated the airlines in 1978, the Congress did, and they didn't give the FAA any more inspectors. So, uh, Jeffrey, you want to pursue this? Uh, uh, NTSB called me up. I, you know, I had a doctorate. Uh, I had a commercial pilot's license. And they basically said, come to Washington and try to help us get a handle on the biggest cause of, uh, of crashes, human error. So I made a number of recommendations that were up, uh, ultimately adopted. And I can tell you, back in the old days, we were, when I went to work there, we'd lose an airliner about every two months, a big airliner. Yeah. And now we lose them about every four or five years so yeah. it's uh, the airline flying has become tremendously safe oh it's absolutely safe there's no yeah. question and think about this more people die uh you know through alcoholism related uh situations of uh, car crashes than all the air crashes in a given year oh yeah relatively speaking yeah. i mean it, it's been know. several years since i think the the lady from uh 
uh, Albuquerque, I'm blocking on uh, the name, that she was sucked out of a southwest uh, window when the, the, the left engine exploded. She was uh, partially sucked out. And, and, and incidentally, there was another national DC-10 many years ago where the individual was sitting by the, by the window, same kind of thing. Engine exploded. This guy was literally sucked out. Uh, uh, Jennifer, was, Jennifer Reardon. Jennifer Reardon, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, she was, uh, she was tragic a, death. A, a lovely, affable, congenial lady. I, I happen to know her. But that's Personally. about the last person to die in an airliner accident. That was several years ago. So it, it is amazingly safe bec- for a number of reasons. And my guest again, Alan Deal, he's a research psychologist, has more than 30 years really researching uh, mysterious plane crashes, uh, worked for uh, National Transportation Safety Board, Federal Aviation Administration, or had associations with them and the United States Air Force, and eventually became a whistleblower. I mean, time is unfurling here. I want to continue. Uh, I want to spend a little more time with this topic and then we'll conclude with your book about your theory about Marilyn Monroe probably possibly being uh, murdered so a lot of us saw that are old enough the movie airport with burt lancaster and uh, george kennedy was, i i enjoyed the movie it was a little cheesy but uh barbara hale from perry mason was in it as well and the beautiful jacqueline Bissett, reddish hair about a 36d as i recall at any rate the plane you know there's that crash uh in the back of the plane uh and bomb explosion I, as so I the suction that we saw that was replicated in hollywood yep. special effects was that fairly accurate in your estimation i think it was it's called an explosive decompression and if you saw the movie you know why they call it uh, explosive decompression very rare by the way uh, uh unfortunately janet reardon just happened to be a victim of it Jennifer, years yeah. ago, but she was, I think, the, just about the last person to die in a major airliner crash. Not general aviation, not military. We know those are still problems. Yeah. And, and Dean Martin was in that movie, by the way. Uh, at any rate, again, folks, a uh, fascinating guest, uh, Alan Deal, research psychologist, uh, spent many years uh, researching uh, aircraft uh, uh, crashes. You became a whistleblower, right? And right. again, I wanted to emphasize, as you talk about this particular point that you are responsible for many protocols in cockpits on commercial aircraft that are used today and adhere to today i mean this is the kind of gravitas that an influence you had and have continually on uh, on the commercial aircraft industry your influence is that profound so before we get into the whistleblower thing what are some of the things that you brought to the protocols that we all when we board and deplane a commercial aircraft, you, Alan Deal, right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, are responsible for as far as uh, safety. Well, when I went to work for the NTSB and started listening to those voice recorders, I, I realized that, you know, this accident didn't have to happen. There was somebody on that flight deck that realized they're not doing the right thing, but they were afraid to speak up. So we developed a type of... In the cockpit. In the cockpit. Uh, and, and basically, it's called crew resource management. NASA developed it. I wrote the recommendation. The FAA adopted it. And it's now required for all airline pilots. By the way, medical doctors now get this training, uh, particularly ER people and OR people. Uh, and so that, that spread throughout the world. I mentioned that I was able to get the shoulder harnesses in light aircraft. Uh, I worked. On That's some- a big deal, folks. Yeah. Remember 1964 before? There were no safety belts in cars. Yep. Then we had the safety belt that was that thing around your waist, yep. but it didn't protect your upper 
torso, torso and yeah. a particularly neck whiplash. And then the shoulder harness came in around 1971-ish. I can't believe I remember all this stuff. <laughs> but you were instrumental in invoking the shoulder harness into the cockpit for the pilots. Well, that's 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 because I my head bounced off the instrument. But that's panel. a big deal, though. Yeah, but in I mean, my that's, crash, that's a big deal. I, yeah, I uh, I was determined to get Cessna to do it. They were the biggest manufacturer. Once he they did it, all the other manufacturers uh, installed them as as standard equipment. That's the key. Yeah, you could always put shoulder harnesses in your private airplane, but I wanted them to be standard equipment. And uh, by the way, they they do reduce fatalities uh, by about fifty percent. So I fought that battle. But there were a number of other ergonomic issues that I uh, was able to get uh, the industry to adopt. Interestingly, when the automated aircraft started coming in back in the 80s, the FAA administrator, I'd left the NTSB who investigates accidents. The FAA is designed and tasked with preventing accidents, of course. They, they run the system, the controllers, the design. They supposedly supervise the design of the aircraft and certify the airmen both medically and psychologically. Bottom line is... I, uh, I, 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 feel, <laughs> I felt like we, we really needed to do a much better job, and now we're going to have all these automated cockpits with two pilots, not three. So I told the administrator, we better be very careful when we certify these aircraft. Now, that didn't really happen. We all heard about the, the 737 MAX, the automation causing these two recent accidents uh, in Indonesia and uh, later in uh, Ethiopia. So, I, you know, unfortunately, the administrator didn't take Al Deal's advice uh, uh, to heart. And uh, Well, typical bureaucrat. They don't want to do any. Everything's yeah. status quo. And, of course, those were overseas accidents when I was talking about. Uh, well, re- sure. Re- sure. I'm talking yeah, about but still best practices are best oh, yeah. practices, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to make the point, Jeffrey, yeah. uh, that uh, overseas, there's certainly been people killed in airliner crashes since Reardon died uh, yeah. uh, on the way to Albuquerque. But uh, uh, we've, been, we've made a lot of progress. And, uh, I, you know, but to do that, sometimes you have to stick your neck out. And uh, I uh, was running a battle with the FAA administrator. Uh, about uh, use of uh, automobile safety seats to protect infants. As you know, kids under two, uh, you, you know, you can't put them in a regular seat. You can, now most airliners, most airlines will let you bring, I shouldn't say most, some will, uh, an automobile safety seat, which are certified, uh, and those, those will protect your infant. But the airlines didn't want to do that, and so the administrator testified to Congress erroneously that they don't help. And I'd, I'd seen the bodies of these infants in the morgue. You know, that was one of the things I did at NTSB is uh, assist with the autopsies. And I said, look, I, we can't let that stand. So I literally sent the FAA reports to the Congressional Committee anonymously. <laughs> I wasn't quite crazy. And uh, at that time, the Sky Marshals worked for the FAA. There was no a TSA. And they diverted, believe it or not, uh, Jeffrey, they diverted the Sky Marshals from their airport and aviation security duties to find out who the whistleblower was. Yeah. Of course, they tracked me down, and I confessed, and they basically said, get out of Washington. We need to get back to uh, anti-hijacking. you know anti hijacking. Uh, This was back in the 80s, and yeah. we all remember the Cubans at that time were You know, I want to spend a whole show on hijackings, which were really prominent in the uh, mid-60s to about the mid-70s. I mean, hijackings oh, yeah. were happening, you know, pretty 
almost par for the course. And then something, you know, precluded that. So I, I want to spend some time on that on another show. Will you make a note so that we can talk about hijacking, sure. hijackings, the history of hijackings? Because it was pretty common, you know, place, particularly if you're on the East Coast, you know, and you're traveling from <laughs> from north to south, that you're going to end up in Cuba. And I don't, I don't mean to sound, you know, flippant about it, but I mean, it happened pretty regularly. Yeah. Anyway, so the whistleblower, you were recognized as a whistleblower, bringing attention to these obvious safety measures that were you know, necessitated, and you were told by national bureaucrats, "Get the hell out of here!" Right? Yeah, they they basically they threatened me. I, we could go into what. Well, they we don't need me to get into that because the bottom line is uh, <laughs> the FBI will be calling me up. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting. Uh, the tragedy of that whole thing was when I left Washington, they were doing a type of training called aeronautical decision making for light plane pilots. And uh, they canceled the program. JFK Jr. didn't get the training, and he made the mistakes that were in the training program. Yeah, that was 1999, to remind our right. listeners. Yep. JFK, that would uh, the son of John F. Kennedy, of course, the one that saluted uh, November 25th, 1963. I can't believe I remember that. And he was a little kid that saluted his father. One of the most poignant photographs ever yep. taken in the history of photography, a child saluting his dead president father uh, two days after the assassination. Remember, his head was torn apart. Oh, yeah. And it was a, a public assassination in front of God and everybody. That's a, a different show. So I want to ask you a very sober question, and, and I want to be as delicate as possible. When you have seen remains of a crash, when people are dead, obviously, is it a function more of the impact and bodies being torn apart or is it more the fire and heat or is it a combination thereof well uh, first of all crashes airline crashes are fairly rare uh, uh, i'm speaking of airline crashes yeah. when you're coming from five miles up down into the you yeah. know the ground and, and well most accidents occur on landing or takeoff and they are survivable now uh in, in most cases people survive these crashes uh but uh you know, uh, having to work in the morgue was kind of, you know, I'm a psychologist. I did uh, what they call psychological autopsies, but they uh, they told me you're going to learn how to assist with real autopsies. And boy, that brings home the trauma uh, and makes you really want to speak up and, if necessary, become a whistleblower. And I always figured that, uh, you know, I'm here in Washington. I'll probably get fired for some of this stuff. But I'm not going to stay silent and, you know, and watch these kids get killed because they don't have automobile safety seats, et cetera. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, they retaliated and ended up, cost, I think, costing JFK Jr. his life because he didn't get the training that I had helped design and we tested it. We showed that it reduced accidents in these general aviation pilots, but the FAA was mad at me, so they canceled the program. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, the Air Force didn't know I was a whistleblower. They hired me, but they later regretted it uh, when I blew the whistle. My guest, Alan Deal, research psychologist, survived a plane crash, spent more than 30 years really understanding uh, safety regarding uh, all aircraft, but particularly commercial aircraft, and was instrumental in actually implementing protocols that we all live with when we board uh, aircraft, particularly commercial aircraft. Again. A sober question. I want to be as delicate as possible, but I'm just curious in the physics of, of, of death. I, I guess I just have a fascination with that. Uh, but anyway, so when a commercial aircraft does, unfortunately, you know, there's the peril of that. 
hundreds of people that is it mostly the fire that consumes the people or is it the actual impact and the tearing apart of just you know the the mechanics of the body yeah normally it's uh, blunt force trauma uh blunt force as, trauma okay yeah, as that's say that's fine. Uh, and then the fire happens injuries well. are rare uh you know this is something we probably can't go into but yeah but i, I, I just was curious it would yeah. so it's it's the blunt force impact injury okay fine uh the other thing that's interesting because i want to go into our next topic here but in Albuquerque, because we're a mile high, remind our listeners, if you're at sea level, whoever you is on a commercial craft, and then you're in Albuquerque a mile high, you need more, uh, you need more uh, space, flight uh, road, what's it called, uh, what's it called, the... Uh, Altitude? No, the uh, tarmac, it's called... Oh, oh yeah, you, it, it, because of the thin air Yeah, so it, it takes longer yep. to, to take off, take off in little. Albuquerque... Than it does in, uh, you know, let's say Tampa, <laughs> uh, Tampa or Los Angeles, yep. because there's more air yeah. at sea level. So just keep that in mind, folks. You have to be traveling about 120 miles an hour here in Albuquerque to take off, and you need more space. What's it called? I can't believe I, it's uh, what uh, is density it? altitude is what the uh, pilots call it, and it's a function of, of course, the altitude above sea level. Yeah, but it's also a function of temperature. Believe it or not. Oh sure. On hot days, the planes roll long, uh, farther. Uh, and they have to. It takes longer to climb and well, take off and climb and and uh, reach altitude on on warm days. So uh, Albuquerque is kind of facing a double whammy: the altitude and the temperature in the yeah, summer. Yeah, sure. But uh, that's uh, why we have one of the longest. Uh, uh, runways, yeah. There you go, runway. That's the word I was looking for. My Ab- God, absolutely. Uh, we have one of the longest runways there, and it have for a long time, right? We have to. We have to because we have to. And that, of course, that's all dictated by the FAA. They, of course, and the manufacturers uh, specify how. But much those are the interesting points that I like to discuss on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. These little points that are interesting that I think most people never really think about. If you're in LA, you only need a quarter mile of runway, but in Albuquerque, you might need a whole mile depending on temperature conditions all of that so even wind factor is another uh, obviously the prevailing winds you take off into the wind as we all know uh and, and uh if if there's no wind and it's a hot day and you're taking off from albuquerque that plane's gonna roll and roll and roll but don't get excited those <laughs> those pilots know that uh, what they need and they'll, they'll wait till they have to reach a certain speed on their airspeed indicator before they'll pull a nose back but usually and, it's about 120 miles an hour is that right uh, somewhere uh, in there nominal Nominally, you know, it depends on the load, of course. That's another yeah. factor. But, I mean, a typical Southwest aircraft. Yeah. Uh, about 120, uh, 20, that the range. The things you learn on straight talk with Jeffrey Callen. On the reverse, one of the most dangerous maneuvers uh, is landing, obviously. Probably the most dangerous maneuver in a flight, uh, you know, cycle is landing. About the average speed on landing a typical Southwest aircraft aircraft would you say uh, pr- probably around uh, one again and load factor uh, density altitude uh, the the temperature and uh, the wind uh, all uh, well the wind doesn't affect the, the airspeed but they typically around it's about the same speed so i thought take off and landing yeah. is roughly nominally between 120 and 150 miles an hour now they calculate it in a thing called knots which is 1.6 miles yeah an hour. not as a little bit long uh, faster bigger, than yeah, bigger, it's a bigger bigger uh, than a mile per hour uh but uh, it's a nautical term hence the word but the it, but it's the impetus the momentum the gravity that's really the fact it's the speed of 120 it speaks for itself yeah but stopping the impetus that's what's uh 
that's what's a that, that's the physics of oh yeah and of course of landing we we all know they stick out the the flaps when they're trying to slow down to land they creates dr- called creates spoilers. It creates drag yeah it creates drag but it also creates more lift at low speeds and then they when they land you'll see the things on the top of the wings are called spoilers come up and of course you'll you'll hear the engines go into reverse yeah and the uh, jet blast is directed forward and of course they they're stomping on the brakes too uh, yeah depending on how close they are the principles of the engine or intake uh compression explosion thrust i think as i recall for the things you learn on straight talk okay ellen i've got to move on to our next topic Again, we only talked about a little, you know, just a, we scratched the surface on this topic called aviation crashes. Would you like to be a guest on some other time? Yeah, maybe and we can come this? back and talk about military crashes, which are right. still occurring. I, I ended up having to leave the Air Force Safety Center uh, when I was assigned to investigate the worst fratricide since Vietnam. Vietnam. Uh, but that was a, that was a Bill Clinton. Uh, uh, he, he promised to uh, hold people accountable, and I saw the Air Force wasn't going to do that. So I blew the whistle, and of course you don't. <laughs> whether you're out here in Albuquerque or in Washington, they will get you for blowing the whistle. So given, as we conclude this topic, uh, mysterious crashes, aviation, all of that, and given your extremely important uh, position in the world of protocols for safety that we're all living with thank god for people like you what brought you to albuquerque from the pentagon well i I actually uh the air force when i blew the whistle about the jfk thing in the kitty seats uh uh a guy had just written a book john nance abc news just written a book called blind trust and the air force said it was about me at the ntsb where i'd came up with all these safeguards and basically the Air Force said we got a lot of accidents get that guy out to our safety center which at that time was in California they closed the base they moved it here so that's how I got involved I was an Air Force Academy cadet I'd worked on Air Force laser guided weapons I'd worked on the AC-130 these big gunships that was one of the things I did uh, uh, before I went to work for Cessna so I knew the Air Force and I knew I could I thought I could help the Air Force but unfortunately, I discovered they got problems too with cover-ups, and I wasn't going to I wasn't going to go along with that any more than I was going to let the yeah, FAA Pro- Project Blue Blue Book UFO cover-up. But that's a different topic. But anyway, what brought you here? Well, uh, I, I was reassigned here when they closed the oh, base, okay. and so I was just here. And uh, when I blew the whistle on that uh, general causing the worst fratricides. So the Air Force Safety Center is in Albuquerque? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So are there a lot of U.S. safety centers in, around the country? Uh, there's three military safety centers, a Navy in Virginia, Army in Alabama, and the Air Force is in, right here in Albuquerque. I, didn't th- I don't think a lot of people knew that. I didn't know that. So Albuquerque actually is the host city to the Air Force Safety Center. Absolutely. Did the, not know that. The huh. problem, Jeffrey, with that is the Air Force investigates their accidents. There is no Pentagon NTSB equivalent. Got it. Independent of the operators yeah. that often cause the accident. So they It's like Biden trying to explain inflation. Okay. It's a joke. All right, let's move uh, on to our second topic. We got about 20 minutes here. Everyone obviously is familiar with the uh, the very apotheosis, the very paragon of of sexual idolatry, and that is Marilyn Monroe. Uh, we all probably remember around 1962, uh, she passed away, found nude in her, her bed in California. 
sleeping pills. You have written a book that is contrary to perhaps what the standard uh, conclusion was about her death. Talk about your book, uh, Kidnap. This is uh, Kidnap Marilyn, The Daring Scheme to Save Her. And I'm looking at uh, the cover, and I'm looking at Marilyn Monroe and her booksome figure, but also the two John, F. John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. This must have been when she sang that happy birthday happy song. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Yes. Yeah. So talk about your interest in writing this book and you know coming up with this conclusion uh, in theory. Well, Jeffrey, I, I guess I first got involved. I should tell you that when I went on some of these crashes, I got involved with the CIA and the FBI. And I, uh, I interviewed an FBI agent one time about the Kennedys, just uh, uh, more or less socially. And he said uh, uh, he'd worked with, this is a senior FBI agent, and back before Kennedy was president, when he was a senator, Bobby was a lawyer for a, a congressional committee. And he said, uh, uh, you know, this is after Jack was assassinated. It's too bad that Jack was killed. You know, we talked about JFK Jr. Uh, but he said, Let God, heaven help us if Bobby ever gets elected president. And I, you know, I kind of did really? a double take. I said, wow, what, what's with the Bobby thing? And he said, look, I was with him behind closed doors and the guy was a total sleaze. I won't go into all the details that he revealed. But uh, that always kind of stuck in my memory. And then, of course, when she, um, reading about different theories. Now, there's four theories, uh, basically, uh, to her death. One, the medical examiner said probable suicide. Again, we're talking about Marilyn Monroe, 1962. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of people, her friends said, no, no, it had to be an accidental overdose. But there's been a number of books, uh, particularly recently, that said absolutely not. She was murdered. And uh, Robert Kennedy was in the house that night that she died. Okay, so uh, it occurred to me, and I, you know, having worked with the deep state, the CIA, and I, but this is the Cold War. They had to do things uh, that, you know, they probably didn't necessarily want to do. But uh, the problem was, is Marilyn Monroe was not the dumb blonde she played when she was pillow talking the Kennedys. She would ask them about national policies, and they would tell her. Uh, about the plans to kill Castro, for example. And uh, they told her that, uh, Bobby told her that Jack had seen the, the pictures of the bodies from the UFOs. Uh, uh, the scariest thing that I ever heard is that the Jack was thinking about nuking the Chinese uh, atomic lab because they were working on a bomb. Uh, hopefully they, the Chinese would think it was an accident. And the Pentagon told Jack, uh, Mr. President, uh, we could start World War III by nuking the, the lab. So Marilyn knew all this stuff. Let me just invoke this again, folks. Alan Deal is my guest. He's written a book called Kidnap Maryland, The Daring Scheme to Save Her. Remember the context of the time, though, in uh, 59 to about 62, particularly 61 area. Both John F. Kennedy president, married to Jacqueline uh, Onassis, uh, Bouvier, uh, and uh, uh, what's his name? Robert Kennedy. Uh, Ethel was his Mary, Ethel. He had about 30 kids. They were having sexual relationships with Marilyn Monroe. And, and remember, that's an important dynamic because when you're in bed with somebody, you know, lots of things happen beyond sex. A lot of intimate conversation. Now you have got the president, the attorney general, two of the most powerful people on planet Earth who have a lot of clandestine information at their disposal, sharing this information with a movie star. Yeah, when, when, Kenneth, uh, when uh, Marilyn was... Uh treated for her mental illness they estimated her iq at 140 
This was a very bright lady that yeah. was very interested in politics and geopolitical issues like what's happening in, in Cuba. So anyway, these guys, these two brothers, apparently to impress her, told her things they shouldn't have. Yeah. Now remember, she was depressed and she was drug dependent. The other thing that's been pretty well verified, not by me, but uh, you know, I wrote the book based on, uh, other than the RFK interview or the uh, FBI interview of RFK, these are open source uh, documents that I looked at, but it was clear that both the FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, knew she was married to a commie, uh, Arthur Miller, and uh, or commie leading uh, leaning uh, a writer. And so, anyway, the bottom line is both agencies were were they bugged her house, okay? And they'd hear her talking to her girlfriends about this stuff, and you can just imagine the CIA that's <laughs> planning to hit Castro, and now you've got this depressed and drug dependent lady telling other people that aren't authorized to know this kind of yeah. uh, detail. So the uh, CIA had to shut her up. This was the Cold War. and so Yeah, they, that's right. The Cuban Missile Crisis was uh, October, later, uh, October yeah. of that year, 62, when the world was at the precipice of nuclear annihilation. It was a da- the Cold War was a dangerous time. I was in the service uh, for part of that, and, and, and I understand the CIA couldn't allow her to go along and, and talk. Uh, uh, so they had to shut her up, and the book is really about they didn't have to kill her, uh, and we can talk about that yeah. after the break. Again, my guest is Alan Deal. He's also the author of Kidnap Marilyn, the, the Daring Scheme to Save Her. So again, context, she was the probably the, great, the, the greatest movie star female of her era, maybe Elizabeth Taylor, a distant second. In fact, a year later, uh, Cleopatra came out, the most expensive movie at the time, which was really kind of a dud at, in terms of uh, recovering its, uh, its, its, its monies. But Marilyn Monroe, at the height of her career, she was depressed. She was in the middle of making a movie, I think, with Dean Martin, as I recall. And, Something's uh, got to give. There you go. So, at from what I've read, she was actually in a better state of mind right around that time frame. That's why a lot of her close friends were, you know, mysteriously like mystified as to why she wouldn't kill herself right now. This movie's coming out, blah, blah, blah. So that's another reason to right. lead to some suspicions, correct? Well, yeah, and Fox had just given her a million dollar contract uh, two weeks before uh, uh, she supposedly died. Now, in my book, I talk. So about, it'd be about twenty-five million today. Yeah, in today's at, dollars. At, uh, uh, she was finally uh, getting some recognition from the studio. Okay, after they fired her, as you probably read. Yes. Uh, they rehired her at a big increase in salary, uh, and and so she was in a good state of mind. That's why so many people like Frank Sinatra has said she didn't commit suicide, uh, and Jeannie Carmen was her best friend. And she was there when Bobby Kennedy would come by and visit with her. Uh, her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, testified that Bobby Kennedy was in the house the night that she, quote unquote, died. And what I explored in the novel is why she didn't have to die. The CIA had a program. Uh, we've all seen the Manchurian Candidate. Yeah. Uh, they had a program. The CIA had a, their own version of, of, of mind control. It was called uh, MK Ultra. And uh, Netflix has done a couple of programs on that. Uh, one is called Wormwood, and the other is Stranger Things. But the CIA was concerned that if the bad guys, the commies, had this mind control program, we had to have one. One of the things they could do with that mind control program is induce 
uh, what's called retrograde amnesia. I've had some training in hypnosis. I'm not a licensed hypnotist. So retrograde means back in time. They they can make you, they can basically erase memories. So what I suggest in the novel, if somebody at CIA had the courage to say, we don't have to kill her, we've got this program, we'll make her forget that she ever dated the Kennedys and certainly the the various things they've told her. Yeah. And then we can release her back into society. And, and, you know, we've all seen the stage hypnosis thing where the guy, you know, the hypnotist has the guy running around flapping his wings or flapping his arms like a chicken and clucking. And then uh, the guy will clap, the hypnosis, hypnosis will, hypnotist will clap his hands and say, you're not going to remember any of this yeah. when you wake up, clap, clap. And the guy doesn't. Well, that's, that's uh, and some of that may be, Showmanship. I got you. We've only got about six minutes again. I hope we can make the Biden presidency disappear through this uh, particular protocol. <laughs> my guest, Alan Deal, Jeffrey Candelary, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelary. Love to have you sponsor my show. Uh, get a hold of me, jeffrey.candy77 at gmail.com. So what is the thrust of your theory as to how she died in your book? Well, my... Uh, or do you want people to read the book <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> and find out there? Uh, oh, uh, you know, obviously, I, I think people would enjoy it. I've had a couple of people who are famous novelists read it and say, wow, you can't put this thing down. But basically, you know, uh, being a whistleblower, I, I know that going against the grain in an organization, I never worked for the CIA, but I've worked for other big government ag- agencies, you're at risk. So this uh, psychologist decides, he makes a pitch about, Let's let's kidnap her, take her to a black site. Uh, we'll deprogram her. Okay. Uh, uh, we'll induce uh, retrograde amnesia. She won't remember the details of di- dating the Kennedys or the uh, secrets they told her, and then we can bring her back to society. So basically, subject her to a Manchurian candidate kind of a you know yep. kind of a, a you know protocol, if you will. Yep. And and that's interesting. Again, the context of the time, you had the Cold War. It was about a year before Kennedy was assassinated. Marilyn Monroe is still the preeminent female, you know, sexual high con movie star in the world. She was married to uh, DiMaggio for a while. Then she married Arthur Arthur Miller Miller. a little bit later. He was a known uh, sympathizer to communist propensities, probably scrutinized by hoover who was himself a, a pretty a pretty sick human being nonetheless he's still the uh you know the head of the fbi and then you got the cia scrutinizing them then you have john f kennedy then you've got the brother the attorney general having sexual relationships with this person revealing very clandestine surreptitious information and then they recognize she's not this dumb idiot she's actually a very smart person and she's a movie star you know commanding the attention of millions and millions of people what are we going to do now she's a loose cannon yep and you know curiously she dies later you know right in that time frame and even then, I think it was an Asian uh, a person who did the autopsy at yeah. the coroner's office. Noguchi as I was his name. There you right. go. I knew he was Asian. He had some question marks oh, yeah. about definitively saying this is how she died. Well, if you uh, you should remember that uh, Robert Kennedy, according to girlfriends, uh, uh, promised to marry Marilyn. And Marilyn was furious when Bobby, she sang that song and everybody started... Again, remind our listeners, this is national TV, Washington, uh, Kennedy's birthday had just turned 42. Madison Square Garden. And there she is singing, you know, in all her glory. Happy birthday to (laughs) you, Mr. President. Everybody remembers that, right? 
Uh, exactly. And apparently Jack told her, uh, told Bobby, go out there and tell her it's over. We, you know, if you ever want to be president, you've got to ditch her and, you know, don't be telling her you're going to marry her. Yeah. Well, Marilyn got furious and she told girlfriends about this that she was absolutely furious and she was thinking about holding a press conference wow. and revealing that secret information and the tryst with the two Kennedys. And of course, you can just imagine the reaction when Hoover, who was bugging her house, told the Kennedys that. Oh, my uh, gosh. And other people have said that. That's not Al Deal just speculating. A lot of other people... Who so this is Peyton Place at the very highest levels, at the very pantheon of power in the world, right? I mean, exactly. it's incredible. So well, how, do, how do people access uh, your books? I think we got about three minutes or so. Well, you can buy them on Amazon. Uh, both uh, Air Safety Investigators is that uh, my memoir about investigating plane crashes and kidnap Marilyn the daring scheme to save her is uh, it's a novel now uh, folks I'm saying that he didn't that CIA didn't have to kill her and if one CIA psychologist had spoken up and explained look we can kidnap her erase those memories and then bring her back we'll fake her suicide she'll disappear for a few months and then she'll will dump her off in Tijuana and she uh, will say I tried to commit suicide but uh, I was right uh, rescued by yeah she'll just be, and she'll just be another wasted soul in the annals of you know hollywood but, uh, but she would come back as, as as an actress just not remembering the stuff yeah about but i'm sure if we understand the ultimate effects of the manchurian candidate protocol it's going to have some other you know side well, effects on just the human condition at any we've got about two minutes left alan anything we didn't touch on on this topic that you'd like to uh to discuss we've got about two minutes well, simply, I'm just throwing out another explanation. Noguchi said, in essence, he questioned, even though he did the autopsy, uh, he questioned whether he, he, he changed it from suicide to probable suicide. Like I said, others like Frank Sinatra said there's no way uh, she was murdered. Uh, he said it to friends. Uh, she was also dating uh, Sam Giancana, the, the mob boss from Chicago that was at war with Robert Kennedy. Oh, so. yeah, because he had accused him in open, in, you know, in, in, in open domain. Oh, yeah. And he even told the one guy, you're just a little wimp or something. He completely uh, disrespected this mafioso in front of everyone. Remember when he did uh, I, that? Absolutely. I and, mean, and, my and, God. And so there were a lot of people that were looking at Marilyn as a potential source. Uh, the mob would love to have exposed Robert Kennedy. And if she died and people said uh, Bobby was in her house the night that she died. Yeah. Uh, and it's been proved. That's he, the end of his presidency and Bobby's future. And he can't. He was investigating a mob. Now, the most interesting thing uh, was uh, the next day after her death was announced, all of a sudden her phone record. She had a red diary that supposedly contained a lot of information about the Kennedys and her relationship. All that disappeared. Her autopsy samples disappeared. Uh, who could make that happen? And, yeah. uh, I speculate that uh, J. Edgar Hoover may have been doing the Kennedy. And in a related area, Kennedy's brain actually was gone. And I don't know if it's ever recovered for many, many years. I Can you imagine his brain material was 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 not available anyway? Uh, Alan, it has been a pleasure. Alan Deal, uh, you're a fascinating gentleman. You live right here in Albuquerque. I'd like to have you back and continue these conversations on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari. Thank you, Alan. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey. I. Uh I enjoy, uh, obviously, discussing these topics, not just because I wrote a couple of books. but uh, Yeah, and don't forget my book, uh, Toro, 
The Naked Bull on Amazon. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelary. Thank you, Eric. Have a great remainder of your weekend. All right. Thanks a lot, Jeffrey. And thank you, Al, for coming in. More outstanding Saturday programming coming up on 1600 AM, rockoftalk.chat, abq.fm. Liberty Lovers up next.